Ladies and gentlemen, this is the main event. Are you ready? Let's get ready to ramp up your sales. And now the man you've been waiting for. He is the real thriller in Manila. The undisputed, undefeated, reigning, defending, pound for pound, heavyweight, John, the sales machine, Rankin! Ladies and gentlemen, today's guest is best known for helping founders and their sales teams double their sales results in less than 90 days. He's an official member on the Forbes Business Council and also has been featured in Forbes, Yahoo Finance, Market Watch, and more. A four-time sales force, top sales influencer, and Wall Street Journal best-selling author of Six Figure Sales Secrets. Prior, he has worked for two Fortune 500 organizations and was promoted 12 times in eight years. He has won countless awards and has been ranked in the top percentile every single year. In his last role, he led one of the top sales regions in the company with over 110 employees. He is the founder of Vinley Consulting Group. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Marcus Chan. Hey, John, what's going on, man? Hey, thank you so much for having me on. You have a great radio voice, by the way. Very throaty. I love it. Yeah, well, this microphone makes me sound good. <laughs> you got a great voice, too. A lot of certainty, yet calmness in there. So obviously, you've been around a block. Tell me more about the six-figure sales secrets and how you help companies actually double their sales in 90 days. Yeah, 100%. So I'm going to kind of divide into two different questions, right? One's going to be what's six-figure sales secrets and one's going to be how do I help companies, you know, get their results. So I'm going to start with the book first because I think it's a little bit easier. Um, you know, when I first got started in sales, John, a short story, uh, this is back in 2007, I thought I'd be good at sales because I was pretty good at customer service, retail jobs, and my first taste into B2B sales was in 2007. And I found it very quickly, it was wildly different and I was absolutely terrible. In fact, I almost got fired my first couple of months. And I remember going to the library because I didn't know what else to do. And because YouTube wasn't as big back then, there wasn't, you know, blogs. LinkedIn wasn't the same way there is today. The resources for sales training and knowledge wasn't really easily accessible. Honestly, you had to work really hard to find it. And I only knew the library. So I went to the library and for weeks on end, got literally every single sales book, you know, Books like by Jeffrey Gittimer, Brian Tracy, just some incredible books, right? The ones I found, there are a lot of really great knowledge inside there, but some stuff was kind of, didn't really make sense for the times anymore, right? Some of maybe some more theory, et cetera, uh, but I just didn't really know how to really improve. Now, fortunately over time, I figured out I had some success and started kind of compounding my success after a few months of kind of a lot of trial and error. Uh, but over time, I started getting better and better, but over time. Now, I didn't really think much about this, but... I started to have success in my career. I started, you know, hitting number one, being one of the top reps, getting, started getting promoted. And I didn't really think there was much to it outside of I'm just working really hard. That's what I thought. I'm like, I grew up work, working really hard. That's probably what it is. Now, over time, I started I start to build sales teams and run sales teams. I realized there was like a bit of a method to the madness. And I started to create my own playbooks over time because there was no no playbook given to me. All I had was outdated playbooks written by the C-suite who had never actually done the job, never carried the back, never had success in sales, never cold call, never, never sent a cold email, never had rejection. So I started building these playbooks to teach to my reps because I'm like, how can I repeat myself? Or how can I uh, transcend the knowledge in my head to them? Now, that was almost like the first iteration of the book that's that's been created now, you know, over a decade later. Now, over time, I started having more and more success. And again, I didn't think much about this, um, but you know, there was repeatable success over time for every team, whether I ran a team of two or three people to the, maybe grew to eight or 10, to suddenly I had 85 employees, to suddenly I had 100 plus employees. I'll teach you the same playbooks each time to repeat success. Now, eventually when I went to go start my own business, I actually didn't even want to write a book. That wasn't like a, it wasn't like a goal of mine. It was like, I'm just going to build this business because I've already been coaching salespeople, coaching teams on the side for fun as a side hustle. Let me just keep doing that. As Over time, as I got my, got my business in my belt after a couple of years, I started thinking to myself, I'm like, hey, you know what? Like, What if I could write a book 
that I could have given to 2007, 2007 version of me. Rookie Marcus, who didn't know his left hand from his right hand, who needed a step-by-step playbook. Everything from how you need to think, to your routine, to how you prospect, to how you run sales calls, to how you run discovery, to how you demo, to how you close. Literally A to Z, how can I create a book for that? So I decided that in uh, March 2022 that I was going to do that. And within three months, I had the book written out. But the reality was is I had taken 15 years in my head to already create the book. That's all it was. All those playbooks from, I mentioned before, that's all I was doing is just grabbing all my playbooks and I was putting it in one place, adding more stories, adding more examples. And I created that book and I launched it and we ended up hitting a Wall Street Journal bestseller within the first week. And that's why I created that book because now, now it's a simple playbook that people can take whether they are brand new or they've been around for a while. And hopefully it will not just teach you tactically what you do, but also will hopefully inspire you some of the stories that if someone like me who grew up with absolutely nothing with zero sales skills can learn to figure it out, then hopefully the person reading it can to, can as well. So that's the origin of the book. That's how I got it. The book's been out for now for over a year. It's been pretty cool to, uh, to do that, but it's been uh, it's been really really cool to get like messages from people from around the world because maybe they couldn't afford uh, or the companies couldn't afford or they couldn't afford maybe some of our you know more expensive programs but they can afford a ten dollar book you know and getting pictures from around the world and having that impact has been very very cool so that's that's where the book came from all right now the sales teams kind of piggybacks off that right because oftentimes you know when you when you deal with a sales team as you know you find most of the time, they don't really have a good process in place to actually improve their sales teams, right? So, so coming in, and by the way, most of the time, like when 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 they're thinking about like hiring someone like me, they almost invariably have tried to improve the results by saying, "Hey, Marcus, can you come in and do like one or two workshops with my team, and then like get them turn around and improve the results?" Now, as you know, and as I know. They get excited for maybe a week after, until a week after, and then they forget. <laughs> okay, and then there's no results, right? They just—it's like because you haven't built habits, you haven't, you haven't like they—they've already forgotten everything. They got, they got, they got, you know, uh, rallied and motivated in the moment. It didn't make sense. So what I did was for the for what I do for teams now, it's a little bit different. I took a look at what I did prior. Right. What did I do prior when I was running teams? Whether it's a team of three people or 110 people, what were the specific systems I put in place to develop them once they were actually hired? And I realized it's actually a very simple model that I was actually doing that had five key components. And I call it CEASE, right? So there's going to be some sort of uh, content, some sort of education. Okay. There's going to be, um, uh, there's going to be, uh, uh, executions. So got to execute. They need accountability, some sort of accountability. They also need some sort of support, right? And then they also need to have um, examples of success, right? So if, if I can combine these consistently together, it's going to help with this, right? So I built a more comprehensive program. So when I go to companies now, instead of me coming in for, say, two sessions and kind of like, you know, like teach and pray, basically, kind of hope, hope things get better, we go in there and we immediately start data tracking, Right, we start tracking numbers immediately, right? So we start knowing exactly where they stand. So by simply, even just simply by having pure accountability and tracking, we're going to start seeing potential improvement. And then we insert them into our system. We start teaching them the right way to actually do everything from the mindset, the beliefs, the routine, the habits, but also what do you do when you're actually doing outbound? What's the why? Why do humans behave a certain way? To discovery, to demo, et cetera. So we walk through all that with them, right? all the reps. So this way they have a systematic way of doing it. They also have an online digital portal. So they're getting trained through this, right? There's accountability to the tracking system. But then we also insert live co- coaching with them live. So that when we go on these live sessions with them, instead of just me on a workshop teaching them, we're diving specific deals, challenges, issues, whatever they're running into. So they can take what's, what they're learning in the content piece and they can apply it now live. They can say, hey, listen, um, I've been trying to work, try to do the powerful framework for discovery, but I'm really struggling here. What should I do? Or, hey, here's this deal. We had a great discovery, a demo, a multi-thread with these multiple decision makers. And now we're at this point and we haven't heard them in two weeks. What should I do next? So now we're able to have this live conversation talking about what they've already hopefully have learned 
and to re uh, to increase their active recall, discuss specifically what to do next, right? And this engagement goes for 90 days. So because now it's a much more comprehensive system versus just me coming to teach a little bit, results literally doubled at minimum, <laughs> you know, by, by simply we're tracking, we're giving them better skills, we're holding them accountable, and now we're teaching them other ways of doing things. And because we do that consistently, then results start to increase. And the really cool part is what happens after 90 days. Because after 90 days, hopefully if we instilled some habits, well, now they're going to hopefully maintain those same habits into beyond day 91 and beyond. So we're, we want to build like machines within the people, if you will, that are consistent and they can show up as habitual top performers, not just a one-hit wonder during a very short time frame. So, so that's how we take a team start to finish. One and done is what I call it, you know, like ultimate leadership challenge, right? It's like, it's, it's minimum two months, right? And, and that's after they go, you know, outdoors for three days and in conditions of that, uh, are definitely out of their comfort zone. Break those beliefs, create new thought patterns. Yeah. I wrote the book, life mastery playbook. Right. And it's, I use it every day. Like, you know, it's not just a book you read. It's a book you use, right? But you keep score and you don't even read the book. It, it's all on video, but it's all about that conditioning because at the end of the day, if you want to be good at anything, you've got to condition it because I don't care about, you know, I, one of the guys I work with, Dan Martell, a private group with him and your goals don't matter <laughs> in actuality. It's your standard. My favorite football team is uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers. And Mike Tomlin always says the standard is the standard. And that's what it is. Because it doesn't matter what your goals are. It matters what your habits and your standards are for yourself in life. And if you don't condition it, right, a lot of people, you know, I, I get engaged by a lot of people. And I, I do some CEO coaching very, very little because of my time running the sales machine. I have my own sales teams and and I still recruit, train, and retain, and train. I love to do it, and I do it for my own company. The, the bottom line is, if it's not conditioned, right, or if you don't have the right habits, then your, your team will be good sometimes. You train sometimes, they'll be good sometimes, but they'll never be great. A lot of companies reach out to me and say, can you do a sales talk? Oh, um, yeah. really not, not really interested. Can you come in and train for three days? I, and I always say, you know, and that's why we built the sales machine. I wanted the system, not a tool, not a CRM. That's an address book. I want a total system. And this is what you're talking about. And we, we took that psychology that you're talking about and a methodology, because what I found is when people know what to do, when to do it and how to do it, and there, you break down the barriers of their internal fears then they'll do it and they'll want to do it, especially when you have a system with rewards, recognition, competition, compensation, like is one of your five where you reward them, right? So I'm all about automating that process and because there's no better way to do it than what you're doing. The live is better than anything else. It's no longer theory and you don't want to practice on a customer. You practice on each other. It's already too late. You're an amateur. If you're winging it and practicing on a customer, then you're not a professional and you're never going to have consistent results. So as a, as the saying goes, right? It's like uh, amateurs play more than they practice. Pros practice more than they play. That's just reality. Every athlete's the same way. Every top salesperson's the same way. And I train direct sales teams. Literally, we, we sell skincare, Aqua Plus. We sell car care. We sell software, uh, loyalty app software, fun crowds, the sales machine. And, you know, a lot of the times I'll come in, like the new people, they'll be sitting in the boardroom or whatever. And I'll be like, what are you doing? I mean, this isn't an executive job. Are you role playing? Are you practicing? Because otherwise you're, you're just wasting, you're burning time. Most are armchair quarterbacks. Armchair quarterbacks. Yeah. You know, un unbelievable. And you know, we were talking before we jumped on the podcast and the newer generation won't understand that, but people that are running the businesses or even <laughs> some of the new generation understand this. You broke records working with a sales team that had never, ever won before. Like they consistently lost. I call 
teams like that, like the Bad News Bears. There's an old movie out there about total underdogs, misfits. But I got that Steve Jobs misfit quote on my wall, right? The crazy ones, because I'm fucking crazy, right? Crazy about success, crazy about empowering others, right? I'm crazy about it because I love it. Not only do you have your own business now and, and you work with Fortune 500 companies, tell me about your journey and how you took this dysfunctional team and made them winners. So great question. So I'll give a little backstory. So, you know, o- over the years, um, when I first got started in sales 2007 and I was going out there, <clears throat> going out there, trying to figure it out, I struggled, eventually had success and started running very small teams. And I started to turn on a very small team. Like I actually got, I became kind of known for that, right? And I remember in 2011, I had thought to myself, what if I just got lucky? At this point, I think I turned around three, yeah, three different teams at that, at that point, right? From bottoms to top at, at the prior organization. I'm like, oh, you know what? Like, I think I'm pretty good at doing this, but maybe I got lucky. Maybe it was the industry, you know, maybe it's whatever, right? Maybe I just got lucky in that last recession. Who knows? So I decided in 2011, I'm like, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to push myself. I'm going to go somewhere else, whole new organization new industry, new everything. And can I repeat success? And my goal, can I, can I do the same thing I did here, but do it somewhere else, right? With hopefully a greater upside. Now, I was hoping to go basically the same leadership type role, you know, running at least a team of maybe five to 10 people, hopefully. But they would, this company wouldn't allow me, wouldn't allow me to do that. There's also Fortune 500. They say, Marcus, you got to come in. We want you to like, yes, you, you, you sound good. You seem to pretty, pretty articulate. Maybe you seem like a good salesperson, but are you really? Like, we want you to come in cut your teeth, prove to us. And then within a couple of years, if you've earned it, we'll put you in that same role as you're basically looking to go into. Now I saw a huge upside of this company. I'm like, well, I think it's worth a bet. So I, I joined the team and it seemed totally fine at first, right? And um, I joined the team and I found out very quickly, the culture of the team wasn't very good. So like literally, for example, on day one, the sales manager I interviewed with, day one was demoted. <laughs> onto the team and suddenly i had a new guy who i had had conversations with i just didn't didn't really understand why i was talking to this other sales manager was now my boss i'm like okay this kind of makes sense and he he came from a different division and i'm like okay turns out like he was put in place to turn the team around the team was a dumpster fire right no one hit presence club that's the war that's the top award they had they're like people say hey it's impossible to win this is like we're a small market in portland oregon we're not a big city we're not Las Vegas. We're not LA. We're not the Bay Area. We're not Seattle. We're not Austin. We're not a Miami. We're not New York. We're not. We're just like little Portland, Oregon. Nobody would really wins here. We don't have the prospect count. It's just territory based. It's it's just like it's impossible. It's been over a decade, and that was the team I walked in on. And I'm like, oh wow, interesting. And, I, and these are all, all my peers saying that, right? And they're kind of like, why did you leave your last couple? You were like, why did you take this? Why did you basically take a two step demotion? I'm like, oh my god, like that make a terrible decision. So I'm a little bit second-guessing myself. Now, fortunately, I started performing one of the top rookies pretty quickly, and I was maintaining it. But then six months in, suddenly my sales manager quit, right? Team was not turned around yet. Sales manager quit. My director, who I had a lot of respect for, he also quit. My VP also quit. I'm like, oh, no. I think I joined a burning ship. I would would be thinking, oh, yes. Well, I was worried at the the time, right? Being being pretty immature in my process, I'm like, oh, no. Like – there's no way they can promote someone like me to maybe be the sales manager. Like everyone that knew my track record before was not there anymore. And I'm like, okay, so new VP comes in and I'm like, so I, I start to like, uh, and, and I put my name in the hat to interview for the sales manager. And I was going against people who had been coming for 10, 12 years, had been like, had like multiple presidents club, lots of awards, a great track record at that company. They didn't care about my past history. They didn't care about that. They're like, what have you done for this company? I ended up interviewing. And it usually takes people two to three years at best to get into that sales leadership role. I did nine months. They promoted to me that sales did nine months. Now, I was very excited now though, John, because now I knew this is this team is a dumpster fire. That means we can only go up. <laughs> like we're the very bottom of the, ra- the stack rankings. Well, I'm pretty sure whatever I do, is, I could probably at least get it to go up a little bit. If, if not, we're not like at that. the bottom, we're in a hole. <laughs> yeah, we're in a hole. Like it's like we're like we're six feet under. We're six feet under. We gotta crawl out to be. At base camp. Right. Now, the kind of cool part was uh, I had I had a, a little edge there, which is for the last nine months, I've been observing very carefully everyone on the team. So I had some preconceived notions of strengths and weaknesses of who's on the team. 
Now, just like anything else, I don't think it's smart for most leaders to come in and try to change everything, fire everyone, and do a whole thing because I walked in, we were already we were already 40% behind our number. So we were already in deficit with a, with a number. I'm like, six, you were six feet under. Six feet under. I was like, I need to stabilize as fast as possible, right? Which means I need to see, like, I need to gauge the talent, see what we can do there, right? And there were some good people on the team. They just weren't necessarily great. So, like, there were people that maybe were just in the wrong role. That's, that's all it was. So I took a look at the team, right? Um, and we and I, before, before I changed a single thing, I, I took a look at the team, sat down every single rep, what was on the phones every rep, went in the field every rep, went to appointments. I wanted to see what they were doing. I wanted to get clarity on the exact constraints to what they were doing. And some of them was skill-based. Some of it was habit-based. Some of it was just, they're just a hot mess. Some of it was, they were just not in the right role. Some of them were just not set up for success, which is a lot of them. So what I started to do is I started putting simple systems in place, such as, hey, let's let's simply train every single week. We're going to train and role play every single week, okay? I'm not going to be a locker room leader, or I'm not going to be an armchair quarterback, excuse me. I'm going to be a, hopefully more of a locker room leader. I'm like, when, when they're on the phones, I'm right there with them, okay? We're, they have appointments in the field. I'm in the field four and a half days, four half days a week with them in appointments, meeting with prospects, like see them. And not only can I help coach them, I can show them the right behaviors and habits of what to do. I can see when they're in the field, when they have a no-show, what's their decision-making process? I can guide them accordingly. And what I started doing was I started teaching them my playbook over time, right? And then the people that I knew wouldn't make it on the team, no problem. Because I knew that from day one that might happen already, I already started recruiting. So immediately from day one, I started recruiting already just because I knew it would take me a lot of interviews to get through. Started interviewing a lot and I started to look at the people that were not going to fill the team and I started to coach them to other roles, maybe better fit roles in the other parts of the organization because what I want to do, I want to do is to turn over number down. So I didn't want to just fire them or have them you know, self-select out. I'm like, if they're a good person, at one point we love that person. Why? Maybe their character, who they are, their values, et cetera. But perhaps they were a square peg in a round hole. Can I find them a round hole to be in instead? So I literally started shifting people into other roles that were better fit for them off the sales team, maybe in service or operations. And they were happy. They're like, thank God, like you saved me. <laughs> you know, like I was dying here, right? Start putting in new people, right? Yeah. You were Mr. Life Support. I, I was, I was, I was trying to make sure we did the team didn't die because that hole was, was big, right? So like, I'm you like, busted okay. out with the CPR for the sales oh, team, hundred percent, hundred percent, because because well, you had to revive them. They were six feet under, hundred percent. And then on top of that, my VP, I knew he was taking a bet on me, right? I'm like, because here I am, some rook, some rookie rep that's been coming for nine months. That he, like, everyone's like, why are you promoting this guy? Like, there are these other candidates that have been there for like like five. Five years plus in the same company. Why are you a rookie guy? And he took a bet on me. So I had to, had to make sure I didn't make him look bad, right? So uh, fast forward to the first quarter, we got back back to 100% at least. Okay, or 100% target, right? Second quarter, 112%, right? So we started to kind of creep up. So now we're starting to like, we're, 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 above, we're, we're above ground. Now we're starting to go up, right? It took me probably another a, a one, it could be a one and a half years to completely turn the team around to make it a, a top performing team, right? But what happened was once we once we had that success of hitting Presence Club that year and a half later, and we're sending people to Presence Club, it was almost as if the glass ceiling broke. And what was really incredible was we kept doing it every year. And suddenly we became known as a team. It's like, oh, we're not a, we're not as good as Portland because we we don't have the we we don't have the same market anymore. We don't have this. It became an excuse that other people would say they were not like us. So what my my VP started doing was, I've always pictured this because I, I like machines, I like systems. I can imagine if we're like a sales machine, you know, if you, if you will, someone comes in, they're 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 coachable. They come in, by the time they come out, they're a rock star. How can we rinse and repeat? Higher recruit, out of rock star. Higher recruit, out of rock star. Higher recruit, out of rock star. And even if they're, uh, they end up being a mediocre player, they'll be at least better than before, right? So we can, we can at least take the median performance and raise the median performance of the team. So even if you don't have necessarily 100% of rock stars, but if we could take the lowest performers and raise that average bar far higher than everyone else, and then you have your top performers on top of that, you can start stacking results. 
So that's what we started doing. And, then, and literally, my VP started sending other reps from other teams because their managers couldn't train them well enough to my team. They're like, hey, once you go out in Portland, we want you to benchmark with the team, right? And hang out with them. But I share that specific year, FY14, as a, as a really important year for me personally because that was when we broke that glass ceiling. That was when I could almost like vis- visibly see. And it broke, it broke your glass ceiling too, is what it did. 100%. Because, you know, I've been doing this a long time. And Marcus, I can totally relate. I 100% relate because I, I've been through that journey. I've, I've been on this journey for a long time and I got nothing but respect for you. I always say there's, there's no bum territory. There's just a bum in the territory. And I don't mean a bum as far as, you know, social status. I mean, your mindset is, you know, homeless. Your mindset is lacking, right? I was sent to Denver, Colorado in 19, Christmas 91. And I'd been in in sales for three months, literally just got out of the Navy. But after 99 days, they promoted me and put me in a branch office in Denver, Colorado, which had been the failure of the company for like seven years straight, right? I was in Aurora and we were doing direct sales, right? And uh, I didn't even know, but here's the thing. I didn't know that the company had sent, you know, several people in there and it had failed for several years. And because I didn't know, and I was just so excited to make it work, I fucking made it work. And we, we, we were rolling like, but, Full disclosure, I wasn't good at training, right? I was great at sales, right? And I could drive sales, but I couldn't retain people, right? Because I just from the military and I was fierce, right? And I didn't know how to empower people. I was coming from an autocratic point of view. You know, I could recruit them, I could train them, but retention was, you know, it was terrible. But I still took that market And then once I realized what I was doing wrong, as far as empowering people, once I discovered, right, that it wasn't about me and that everyone's different and you got to, you've got to find out what is their hot spot, what drives them, what's their intrinsic motivation, not just external motivation, right? And once I figured that out, I cracked that code. It blew my mind because I was in one of the smallest markets in the United States. Denver, Colorado at that time had a million. That was the population. I was competing against LA, New York, France, Paris, Italy, globally. And we became the number, we became top five in the world. I mapped out territory systems like we... Like I always say, if you want your success to be automatic, be scientific. Implement systems like what you're talking about. That's why we created the sales machine because like you said, there's a lot of tools out there, right? Tools are like CRMs. Power tools are like CRMs with some MailChimp. Now you got power tool, right? But what you need to actually compete and thrive and win in today's world, you need a machine. You need to automate that, right? So that's exactly what you're doing because it's transformation. You broke through your own belief systems in your glass ceiling and you're like, I'm onto something here. Like these guys all failed and I didn't quit. I took people that were six feet under, brought them back into the world. And not only that, we didn't just, you know, set records. I mean, set goals, but we broke records, right? That's why you're, you're doing what you do. And you've been able to do it for, you know, all these years in Fortune 500 companies. Was that a Fortune 500? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were, at the time, they were... Um... They were a $7 billion company. Now they're like $9 million company. So it's wow. So you company. only added $2 billion? Oh, that was no. I can't, I can't take all the credit. <laughs> you know. I always love to give – I had Alan Bernard on the show. He won an award in Vegas, right, for his uh, algorithmic 
supply chain management decision making uh, system, right? Just he's a genius. I, I met him in in Vegas. He got an award for his technology, and we got an award for the sales machine, right? Like most innovative technology. We we had a conversation because we were speaking there, and Microsoft was there, and they, they were asking the panel. It was an AI conference was asking us all kinds of questions about the future of AI, about systemizing, about building machines and machine learning. And then anyway, Microsoft was there and based on Alan's answers, they they hired him. They had an interview with him, right? At this conference in Vegas and said, "Hey, can you implement your system with us?" The only there's only one caveat. Uh, you got 42 days to do it. And if you can't, then we're going to go with somebody else. But we love what we're hearing, right? So anyway, he's like, no problem. He planted himself inside Microsoft, right? And in 43 days, he did it. And he was on the podcast. And I'm like, so, okay, that's brilliant. And I know, I understand, and I know about your journey. So tell me what was the result? And he goes, well, the first year, uh, we saved them $250 million and made them an extra $100 million. And he's so calm, right? So I'm like, is that it, dude? I thought your shit was good, man. He goes, no, 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 John. <laughs> no. He goes, no, no, no. The second year, we saved them $250 million again and made them another $100 million. I said, okay, I stand corrected. So basically, you saved them $500 million, half a billion. And you earned them an, ex an extra $200 million. I'm like, dude, you're just amazing. And he's so calm, cool, and collective because he's just a curious scientist, right? Genius. Oh, I love like, that. That's basically a 750 million upside, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Here, you know, there, right? like, <laughs> dude, in two years, yeah. there's no bum territory. There's just a bum or somebody that has a limiting belief system within right. that territory, within that company, within that system, because it only takes one person, one opportunity, one distinction to actually change to scale a company. And when you can break through, because all, all self-help, whether it's personal development or professional development, and companies need the structure of personal development within their professional development, because it's all, everything starts with awareness, breakthrough, transformation, but then the next level is transcendence, right? But unless you have those breakthroughs and you see those blind spots, it's, it's called a schetoma in psychology, right? That's why I always go back to psychology, right? Everybody has blind spots. And if you can't see what you, you don't see, and everybody's in the same box, the same cup of soup, the same bowl of soup, no one's going to break out. Most of the time, you need somebody like Marcus from the outside who can come in because he can see those blind spots. And that's the beginning of winning. Does that define what you do, Marcus? I love it. As, as the saying goes, the hardest territory to manage is the one between your ears. And I always have found the greatest leaders can see, they can see the visible in the invisible, right? It's not visible to everyone else, but they can see the potential. And those are ones who can break through. And that's why it's so key to hire external people. It's why I have coaches, why I'm in masterminds. It's why I do these things as well, because when other people can see things that we don't see, it helps us open up our awareness to what's really out there, the potential we can actually go out and achieve. Excellent. Yeah. So obviously you got to recruit, train to retain, but then the next level, right, is you just got to start stacking wins, right? You know, I always say, you know, keep moving forward, keep stacking wins, keep getting stronger. And, uh, you know, even if it's incremental, 1%. A week, it's 52%, but you can compound that and turn it into hundred per, hundreds of percentages of growth, right? So that's the first part. Second part, in your experience, what's the most effective way to fill up a pipeline? Mm, well, so I think the first, the, the first it's, it's going to go against probably most people do is you need to audit your current pipeline. So I think a lot of time the mistake people make is they look at the existing pipeline and what they consider to say is a qualified opportunity, 
a rep hasn't had a hasn't had a conversation with them in like weeks or months. They don't know what the next step is, whatever. So I think the first step is is take a look what's actually in your pipeline and audit down to what it really is at, right? So you want to trust but verify. But then number two, instead of going out and start doing outbound. Look at those opportunities that are closest to the close one stage. So they're closest to being like closed, but maybe they, they're in a proposal stage and they've been there's been no answer, right? Whatever it's going to be. It's how can we reignite those those ones that are already in the pipeline? Like you go after those. How can you set up new conversation or reignite those conversations to see what's holding them back exactly to progress into the next step? Maybe it's a proof of concept. Maybe it's deeper conversation. Maybe it's involving their CFO. Maybe it's if they want to have a conversation with your leadership, whatever it's going to be, but you identify the exact constraint to actually move them forward. So you can actually reignite these to actually make them qualified. All right. And then the third thing I would do is I look at closed lost opportunities. So deals that are like, oh, they didn't buy, whatever. How many of those are just right for someone to go back and follow up on? right? To see what happened, have a conversation with them to see what the real objection was. Because reality is maybe they didn't buy from Marcus, but when John calls them, they feel like John, they trust John more. So they're more likely to move forward with John versus Marcus. We don't know. So we want to reignite those opportunities right there. It's it's low hanging fruit. So, uh, and then from there, if you have anything that's already top of the funnel that maybe hasn't progressed into a meeting yet, I will start working on those to kind of move forward. So you, the, the first step when we kind of simplify is like, how can we actually maximize the existing pipeline? After we do that, then we can start adding new deals to the pipeline. So it's getting very strategic and doing the reverse math for every single rep, every single team. So every person knows exactly what they need to do to hit certain targets. So for example, if Mark, little Marcus has a pipeline, uh, has a closed deal goal of $2 million for this upcoming year, and we, we reverse calculate the math to so his closing ratio to his booking ratio, so we know, okay, every day based off his numbers, he needs to make 25 calls a day. Okay. Now we have clear targets each person can work on. We start building the lists, start working those lists. So if you work scientifically, if you will, by maximizing your current pipeline, and then you get strategic with the reverse engineering your numbers, and you start working to daily execution. That's a really, it's a very quick and fast way to actually move things forward to fill the pipeline back up and actually add more deals to your pipeline. There you go, folks. Right? If you want your your success to be automatic, you got to be scientific. Reverse engineer it because that's what is real. Let's face it. You know, if you want to raise the watermark, this is to raise the level of the ships, right? When you can get the skills, the skill set and the mindset, right? And do the work, make sure that the activity is on point based on the result of the individual. That's when everybody can grow. I work so diligently on creating systems so that we raise the watermark. So the entire organization raises, right? right. Most people don't do that. They're just like, well, they suck at sales, right? And for me, there's no bad student is only bad teacher because everybody has greatness within them. And it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be number one because it just doesn't work that way. Right. Right. For the most part, the best practice the most. And you said it earlier, right? About amateurs and professionals. Say that again. So uh, amateurs play more than they practice. Pros practice more than they play. Right on. I, I have the P. You've heard of the NBA. I'm in the, I'm my Philippine studio, and the PBA players. They're in the playoffs right now. I go to their games. They they come in here and they film because we have corporate studios and and uh, they they run podcasts and stuff. But it's a hundred percent true. Like forty hours a week, they're training. They're training. They're sharpening their skills, and they're already pros at the highest level. 100%. You know what I mean? And this is why you know a lot of teammates of Michael Jordan used to give him shit or, you know, privately they're like, man, this guy's insane because, you know, he treats practice like it's a game. Like, why don't you relax? Mm -hmm. But Michael's just a different kind of cat. That's right, man. That's exactly right. You see every top athlete, Kobe Bryant, right? Making, I think it was 400, making 400 free throws every morning, right? Michael Phelps, like 
he swam seven days a week because he knew if he if everyone did six and he did seven, he had fifty two more practices a year. Right? Like it's these things that compound over time and the machine like an execution, and it compounds over time. That's what makes them the absolute goats of whatever they do, whatever field they're in. Yeah, and they make it, and then they make it look effortless, right? And people talk about you know, well, they weren't born with the talent. Well, for me, you know, it doesn't. Talent doesn't determine greatness. Lots of people have talent. Greatness is created by refining it and taking it to the next level. And and, and every anything, right? Like Clive Davis coached Whitney Houston and he wouldn't even let her sing, right? Uh, or put out an album until he thought she was ready. She was actually practicing for years and then became what I think is the greatest singer of all time right? Just amazing. So even if you set up a structure and set up a system, right? And you, you feel that pipeline, right? Because there's a lot of companies that listen in on this podcast, right? Or people that want to just make a difference right now. You do all of that, but then the salesperson out there doesn't have the psychology or the methodology, or they slip through the crack. In your, in your honest opinion, what's the biggest turnoff or how do salespeople actually sabotage themselves? Mm. Well, um, I think one very common, common thing is, is, is they convince themselves to stop doing what works and just try something new without being consistent with it. So let's just say, for example, this is why you see a lot of times, maybe you hire a new hungry rookie, joins a company, they're gung-ho, they're hungry, they're diving, they're outworking everybody. They start having some success, and what do they do? They put the pull the foot off the gas, and without even realizing it, they stop doing some of those things that actually made them get successful to begin with, and it becomes like a death by a thousand paper cuts. And they start trying different things, and I find a lot of salespeople do the same thing. They say, "Oh, hey, this is actually working for a little bit. That was great for last quarter. This quarter, I'm gonna totally change it." Or they just start. They stop doing these little things that actually make them good. Whether it's simple things like. Taking time to prepare for, for a sales call. Just take a few minutes just to do a little research. Okay, you can go such a long way. Maybe they stopped doing that. Maybe before they were uh, asking one extra objection or, or going a little bit tougher on uh, objection handling. And now they stopped doing that. So all those little things I find is they deviate from the core fundamentals that actually make them really good. And you don't want to do that. The top ones realize oftentimes success boils down to doing the basic fundamentals wildly well without convincing yourself to do other things. It's, it's, it's slowing your roll to actually focus on the right thing to actually move the needle. Amen. Absolutely. Like, you know, like you said, when you first started out, you read a lot of books, right? So I, I agree with you 100%. Um, and then to add to that, though, you know, the top salespeople in addition. So like the irony is they stopped doing what they were doing and then they start wondering why they're not getting the same results. And that's because they have a blind spot or they got lazy because, you know, the fact is comfort is the enemy of success. Yet we all do these things to become successful so that we can be more comfortable, bigger house, nicer Ferrari, right? Nicer Porsche, whatever it may be. We do all these things so we can be more comfortable. And then when comfort sets in, that's the enemy. And that's that's the beginning of the end of you being a top salesperson, whether you're a rookie or a top salesperson. But it's been my experience, the top people, not only do they keep doing those things, but they're constantly sharpening their sword. Because when you read all those books and you established your, what your fundamentals are going to be, Right. That's a psychology. Zig Ziglar had the best psychology in the world. SSS come from service. When in service, never nervous ever. Right. So service, solve problems and make sure they're satisfied. That's a psychology. Right. But then the people start, stop implementing the methodology. And what I find the top or the greatest salespeople, they're constantly sharpening their sword to get better. So, because they know if they're outdated, they're going to get outsmarted. 
and somebody else is going to take the lead. Like Jordan, he had to get better. He he lost a step, right? He got better at defense. He lost a step. He got better at his jump shot and his fade, his fadeaway, right? So he's still the greatest player of all time. He just had to adjust, especially during the times. And now we have AI, Marcus, and everybody's talking about AI. In, in actuality, I'm actually implementing AI. This week is being built in to the sales machine to do a lot of the redundant tax for SDRs and or uh, prospectors, whatever you want to call them. But because I know, I know that 25% of the sale is made even before you talk to a potential client. You know what I mean? Like, what do you know about that client? Are you prepared? Right? So if you're not prepared, you're an amateur, not a professional. Amateurs wing it, professionals prepare, right? So AI is here. So I want your take on AI and how you're using it and what do you think it's going to look like for salespeople moving forward? 100%. So as I love the saying, preparation creates precision, right? Um, and that is so key. So we use AI in a few different ways, right? So even from um, the product size, so what we've actually done for the B2B clients and also the, the B2C clients that we have, because they can sell them directly to reps, is we actually have an AI-trained bot that's been trained over 400 plus hours of live coaching calls, plus all her content. So it's trained based with my brain trained inside it. So they have 24-7 AI support. They ask it whatever question and say, hey, this is what you got to do. This is, this is what you need to do. It pulls the sources and shows people. So we have the AI bot. that We, we literally just launched that today actually to them. <laughs> That's the first thing. So we use AI for that. Um, internally for the business, um, we use AI just, I mean, literally whatever we can make far more efficient and effective with a tool that we trust that we can utilize, we utilize. Whether it's simple stuff like AI note-taking, that has like perfect transcription along with the AI summaries and the action items that can create like auto emails as well. We have that implemented already um, to even the content team. You probably have some of the tools you guys probably have, but we different like AI plugins and tools into Adobe and other tools to make it far more efficient, right? I mean, for example, one of the tools we put in, I, I, don't, I don't know what it's called. I just told them to find it. <laughs> but basically what the tool is, is it takes a, um, like for example, a live interview like this. And us being humans, we have, pauses we have uh you know we say things wrong we have error we go uh, ooh, ah, whatever just being a human this tool cuts out all stuff out so it could take that say the hour-long podcast trim out all those those blank spots out and also automatically create like 12 mini clips that's really pretty pretty good pretty good hooks we can reutilize which before it took my team hours on end to manually cut takes like five minutes now so whatever tools, they're using a bunch of tools. I don't know what else they're using now, but we would like Descript and a bunch of other AI tools, but redundancy. We use for task redundancy is the biggest thing right now. Um, there's other tools out there. Uh, I don't I don't fully bet. I've, I've tried some other things, like some copywriting tools I haven't really been a fan of, right? Um, so I'm still seeking the, the better ones out there. But um, if you're, from the future perspective, I find the future companies, the future elite companies, top companies, <laughs> the future top reps are going to internalize and embrace AI. And they're going to use it like jet fuel for them. Now, I also see it for a lot of teams. If the company sets the team up properly, realistically, I think we're going to start seeing like super reps. So maybe instead of having a team of say 20 reps and having like most of them being mediocre, maybe now it's 10 reps and they're really good. Bigger call plans, bigger territories, having AI do much of the much of the redundant work, you know, from something maybe some of the outbound perspective from the marketing and stuff, and they're just feeding these top reps and making them much more efficient so they can eliminate the administrative tasks. So those people can focus on the best thing, which is selling. And then of course, there's already AI coaching already in play. So there, there's already tools out there that's kind of coaching them on the calls live, like battle cards to kind of guide them towards that. And I think we're gonna see an evolution. Now Fast forward down the road, eventually we'll get to this point, we'll see AI sales agents. That's going to be the key. I've already seen some around. They've been decent, right? But I think eventually they're going to be, they'll be an AI sales agent down the road eventually. 
I love automating everything. That's why we created the sales machine. Like we put a patent, there's a patent pinning on the smart framework. Can you look at the sales machine? It's probably the simplest software you've ever seen in your life. Literally on the sidebar, it says smart. And it's got a sales CRM with leaderboards, levels of development. It's got a marketing suite so you can do marketing campaigns to externally or internally to your customers. It's got accountability through achievement where there's goals, competitions, contests, coaching, a whole reward center. Like it's got retention, a customer retention module. It's got training, a full on interactive training video based system. It's a total machine. We're putting in AI because I know that people don't yet trust AI. There's degrees of trust, like your yeah, boy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you trust, you know, people, but do you trust them with your boy? There's a different, different gig, right? Right. So I'm my, we're putting AI into the sales machine just to take the sales machine to another level, but it's really going to be the salesperson's co-pilot. Right. So that's, and that's how I see them becoming top gun. If you want to be top gun, you do need a co-pilot, right? You, you really do need technology, right? It's not just psychology and methodology with the right technology. Now you can do things better, faster, more efficient. And, and that's where, you know, even your company is probably saving tens of thousands of dollars a year easily because you don't have to do all this editing. Right. And, you know, I have a full on team here, right? I have videographers, uh, graphic designers, content writers, uh, marketing assistants, marketing managers. Like, you know, I got a full team, but full disclosure, we use AI all day long. Otherwise I'd have, have twice the team and the sales machine, like even with our training system, like everybody starts using the system. They, the first thing, any new onboard whether they're in sales, operations, or accounting, they have to go in and set the, their goal. We assign them onboarding training for the 30, 60, 90 days. We set and forget. It automates everything. So we save tens of thousands of dollars in the system just because people know what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. They don't have to come in and shadow and stand around and do absolutely fucking nothing for two weeks, right? They can get right right to business because they do the onboarding even before they start in the office. Right. So automation is key. You've been absolutely excellent. Uh, Marcus, I'm in total alignment cut from the same cloth. Where do companies find you? And, you know, do you have a, a Vinley consulting group website? Where do, where do they find you? Did awesome. You? First of all, John, thank you so much for having me on. I, I, we're totally aligned. Like for me, even from the, the movies we watched, <laughs> <laughs> to, to the sales stuff we talk about. So I love that. So uh, people can find me at venleyconsulting.com. That's my website. And then if you want to get a copy of my Wall Street Journal best-selling book, you can head to venley.co forward slash book to get a free copy. Just cover shipping and handling. Look forward to getting my copy and look forward to diving in. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, Marcus Chan. Thanks so much. That's a wrap, folks. Thanks for joining me today. And if you got value from this episode, do me a favor. Like, subscribe, and refer a friend. And if you want even more value, go to thesalesmachine.com, click on resources, and there's tons of resources there to increase profits and drive performance in your business. Right on, right on, come on.